Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Justin O'Connor, who is the co-author with Singu of Red Creative, Culture and Modernity in China. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, Good morning, afternoon, evening. (laughs) I should say, yeah, this is uh, a a UK and Australia uh, collaboration that, that we've got, so multiple time zones. Um, this is, is a fascinating book. Um, and I mean, it, it, there's a lot going on in the book. Um, it covers, you know, like almost the kind of history of Chinese civilization. It's got, you know, questions about the creative economy. Um, it's got an in-depth case study um, of uh, Shanghai as, as, as this sort of paradigmatic, uh, creative and, and contested place so there's loads of things uh, we, we can talk about but to begin with we should probably do a little bit of ground clearing which is this idea about creativity um, and I wonder if you could talk me through what kind of creativity means why you're interested in writing about it and why you're interested particularly in creativity in, in, in China um, well I, maybe I could get into it in a kind of biographical sense uh, that's how we start the book and um, I'd been working in cultural industries and then latterly creative industries since the since the early 90s, actually. Um, so that's what I was interested in. I was working on cultural policy, mostly in cities, cultural industries policy, mostly in cities. Um, I'd been based in Manchester, but also we ran a kind of a national UK organisation then in the from the late 90s. And, uh, but also I've been working across Europe and various cities, you know, that were interested in cultural industries, creative clusters, these kind of things. So that, that was the background to it. Uh, I'd already been to St. Petersburg. I'd done some work in a kind of Manchester St. Petersburg project. And I'd already become aware of how different this kind of idea of creative industries was when it was transposed to a very different kind of context. And, of course, you say that everybody kind of knows that, but the reality of it, when it kind of hits you in the face, is somewhat different. And But from 2004, I started to go to China, Shanghai specifically, and there was very interested, um, almost like a... Um, on holiday, you know, I wasn't there as a professional thing. I went there to look around the country and I began to see creative clusters popping up. And certainly in Shanghai, it became, it was becoming a kind of a, the new thing just coming from, just coming from Hong Kong. So I was interested in, uh, oh, hello, how are China, how's China going to deal with creativity? So that, that was the biographical start of the book. And what I, what I try to say, or what we try to say at the beginning of that book, is the idea of creativity, which was um, 
you know, there was always problems with the idea of creative industries for reasons we might go into. But the idea of creativity as some kind of um, uh, force, power, capacity related to artistic creativity, and also with historical change, it occurred to us very quickly that something was going on in China that kind of queried this pitch. And um, for for what the, how the book starts is, what underlay this idea of creativity is going to change the world? How was it being specifically rolled out in the idea of creative industries? And also the related creative cities, creative clusters, that, that kind of bundle of things. And we began to look at, first of all, why? What, it, what was it saying about China? What did China need to do to become creative, to benefit from this new creative economy, if you like? And if that was the case, what else was being wrapped up in that? And so to cut a long story short, we began to see the idea of creativity, the, the creative industries, creative cities, creative classes, creative clusters, as actually very similar to older, let's say, imperialist, colonialist tropes, whereby the West represented the modern, the new, the next stage, and in this case, China, but you know, the non-West represented something that needed to catch up, and it could only catch up if it got with the programme. And people like uh, the British Council or the various British consulates had the programme, it was called Creative Industries and those kind of things. And really China's best kind of uh, hope was to begin to modernise, to adopt creative industries, because with this would go a new approach to bottom-up grassroots industries, new approach to cities, it would be about releasing the creativity of uh, of you know entrepreneurs on the ground. It would be about the state moving back or stepping back, and it would be perhaps somewhere the need for a kind of democracy, because only in democracy can a free, creative uh, milieu thrive. So that was the starting point of the book, and we wanted to say what's problematic about that. So that that's kind of how we got into it. Yeah, and I mean, not not to give the uh, the end in a way, but but obviously there is um, a range of ways that these agendas play out that I guess kind of mirror what the British or or indeed the American kind of models and approaches were were saying you know would and should happen, and then there are a range of ways that um, those models just you know get completely transformed, and I guess. One sort of route in to that is is something you'd said earlier about the transformation of, of the agenda that became something like Creative Cities. Um, and I suppose it's important to clear the ground with the story of how we got, um, you know, from cultural industries to creative industries to then things like Creative Cities, Creative Clusters, um, you know, Creative Classes even. And, I mean, you mentioned the kind of biographical elements to that and your own work kind of shifting from cultural to uh, creative but it'd be good to know I, I guess kind of um, a bit more about how we went from the cultural to the uh, the creative well I, I think it's um it at first it was um, a word shift and um, and I've written about this in other occasions that uh, and 
I was kind of there when um, the Blair government uh, and DCMS renamed it the Creative Industries, and it was kind of, oh, right, they're not the cultural industries then. Um, and in some, at first, it was kind of, well, that's just their name. It, it was a kind of a, a, a more of a, how do we say, sexy name. You know, it, cultural had links to the art and culture, you know, had a certain kind of, um, uh, well, it was linked to cultural policy and the arts policy and things like that. Whereas creative seemed much more open, much more popular, um, and more importantly, creative. Uh, made a bridge between culture, cultural industries, and the wider economy. So, of course, cultural industries were economic for the, the cultural industries, you know, the big media corporations, the music industry, et cetera, et cetera. They were economic. But creative industries allowed this economic influence to kind of spread throughout the economy. Um, and it did this by making... Uh, culture is about, um, I'm not going to try and define it now, but it, the cultural industries made symbolic texts. You know, they made symbolic goods. They, you know, it's music, it's painting, it's literature or, or books or journals. It, the things that have a symbolic value, their economic value depends on their symbolic value. Creative is about a capacity or an input. So, of course, you know the the defining characteristic of the what were the cultural industries were that, were that they were full of creatives, full of creative people, and that the, the, this this capacity, in fact, could be uh, as they uh, could be embedded in other industries or could be catalytic for other industries. So, creative was kind of uncoupled from culture, although it was clearly related to the idea of culture and the idea of artistic creativity. But it was kind of uncoupled from that and, and made into some kind of universally applicable economic capacity. And so you get outfits like Nesta, uh, you know, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, beginning to try and find out where creativity is right across the economy. And it, it, it's, it, becomes, it results in some rather bizarre kind of uh, definition so a, a database specialist in a, in a mining corporation is creative um, so it, it there's a there's a whole series of things going on with creative that that move it away from culture which seemed like a good idea at the time you know you speak to people like John Newbegin who who was I think head of uh, Chris Smith the, the, the minister of uh, the culture minister's kind of research unit at the time it was a kind of Good way of doing it. It was it hit the the Blairite zeitgeist, uh, connected with the dot com, you know, creatives, entrepreneurs, etc. But it caused such a massive confusion, and I, I challenge anybody in this listening to this podcast today to define what the difference between cultural industries and creative industries are, and you'll you'll never get a, to the end of that because there actually there's no real definition of creative industries. And that's why everybody says cultural and creative industries, because that just covers it. Um, so there's a there's a problem with definition, and and we saw that very much in uh, well in East Asia generally, but also certainly in China, because immediately the idea of creative industries hits Singapore or Hong Kong or, or Taiwan and, and Shanghai and China itself, 
immediately, they make a difference. Well, the cultural industries are these, and they kind of know what the cultural industries are. Um, and creative industries are, well, they're business services, they're biotech, they're pharmaceuticals or, or other things. So there's a, it, it introduces a real mess into the, uh, the context. So it's, um, for, it, there, are, there is what we all argue in the book, and we trace it in, try and trace it in some detail, is, in fact, the idea of creative, which began as a kind of, you know, sexy new word, but it's same as culture, so who cares? That idea of creative industries really shifted the emphasis to a certain kind of e- economic discourse and a certain kind of, if you like, retooling of creative subjects in 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 terms of uh, you know individual entrepreneurs of the self, cities as networks of entrepreneurs, and that the whole, if you like, the whole structure of um, structure of industries will be these these networks of self-creating entrepreneurs grouping together in creative milieus. There's a whole kind of discourse of this being rolled out. And we tried to show how that was essentially a, a, a neoliberal discourse. So, um, and, and it was one that, that when it got to East Asia, and certainly China, actually fell apart very quickly. The, like there's loads of ways we could um, kind of get into precisely that, actually, what, what happens when this... Uh, discourse hits um, China and, and, and actually specific places in China. And um, maybe the way through that actually would be the case study of Shanghai because it, it sort of is, is the backbone of the book and, and, and you come back to it in several chapters. Um, and it's a really useful illustration of, of the kind of evolution um, of, of maybe what we might describe as a kind of, you know, almost a cultural city to a creative city and then to um, this kind of entrepreneurial set of creative clusters in, in a particular place. So could you introduce this kind of, I guess, sort of history of Shanghai that you try and chart um, quite early in the book, um, the, the kind of moments of Shanghai modern, um, and then maybe we'll move on and talk about um, how the city developed and became uh, sort of, to coin a phrase, creative. Uh, yeah, Sure. I mean, the book actually began as uh, focusing exclusively exclusively uh, on Shanghai. Um, I can't remember what we were going to call it, something like you know, Creative Shanghai or something. I don't know. Um, but and because uh, you go, anybody who visits China, anybody who visits Shanghai first, um, it, it, we're quite familiar with the, the the cityscape now. You know, lots of bright. Big buildings, you know, uh, the iconic kind of Asian super city, mega city. Um, we, we all know that it's it's now as familiar as you know Paris or New York or London. Even you know you, you Shanghai, you can put the that pearl Oriental pearl TV tower uh, on the on the you know in silhouette, and people say, "Ah, oh, Shanghai." So it's quite it's very famous now, and we thought or certain and, and the discourse emerging out of Shanghai itself so Shanghai is uh, the modern Chinese city this is it was in the vanguard of the rest of Chinese modernity so just as um, uh, and so it was kind of a glimpse into the future the rest of China of course lots of poverty 
still lots of people working on the land, but Shanghai represented the modern China. And this uh, had a very long history. And I'm, I'm sure the listeners will know that Shanghai was, um, it, it did exist as a small city before, but it, essentially modern Shanghai was built by the British initially, uh, latterly the French. Um, it was built by Westerners who were given the port as a concession after the Second Opium War. So from about the 1860s onwards, um, it, it becomes a, a Western city, and it's got that famous kind of uh, front frontage along the Bund. People say it looks like Liverpool. Um, yep, indeed. Uh, you know, uh, it's got those kind of almost like an, a, a little encyclopedia of 19th century um, 19th century architectural forms kind of displayed on the Bund. So there we are. A lot of it's opium money, by the way, as well, but uh, we won't go into that. So it was started by it started by the West, and it became very rapidly one of the most modern cities in uh, in the world, actually. So you know it, you can really connect it with what was happening with Paris, with you know housemanization, the modernization through Baron Houseman, or also in in less top down fashion, uh, what was happening in London. So gas, water, electricity, kind of municipal socialism in some ways. Um, but at the same time, it was, it, uh, it, was, it, it was expanding when there was a, a very large civil war in China, the Taiping Rebellion. So many thousands, many millions of Chinese people came to the city, both as workers and also as intellectuals, as lit, the literati. So... It was this space of increasingly a Chinese city, so it began as a kind of little Western placement, but increasingly it was a predominantly Chinese city run by the West, and and it was separate from the the Qing dynasty. So it it became a kind of island of modernity, and it is where the word modern comes into China. And so it's seen as a a space where uh, China meets the West, meets the modern, and, and of course, out of it comes China's most modern city, and and this is how it presented itself right up until the um, Communist Revolution in 1949, and it was kind of accepted as such by Mao, who punished the city effectively. He saw it as you know an enclave of imperialism, capitalism, colonialism, uh, which of course it was, and he. Um, he kept its um, economic engine revving, so to speak, but the surplus that it generated, which at one point I think was around 50 or 60% of China's GDP, the revenue it generated was taken by Beijing and used uh, in, in different fashions. And so when the reforms starting, uh, in the initial reforms starting um, 1978, Shanghai is held back for various reasons, which we talk about. It's seen as actually a problematic city. But from 1992, Deng Xiaoping relaunches uh, Chinese modernization after Tiananmen, and we get uh, what's called the green light given to Shanghai. And the green light is designated China's global city. It's going to be where China really opens up to the world, and it's going to be you know the, the kind of the modern shining centerpiece, the, the new. Uh, New China. So around that has built a whole narrative uh, from the West of, you know, Shanghai's, Shanghai's 
uh, somebody wrote a book, The Gateway to Modernity, which was really the gateway to Western capitalism. And so the green light in 1992 was relaunching Chinese uh, kind of westernization, Chinese capitalism. And this, if you get to Shanghai, you can see what a modern China might look like if Beijing allows it to, to, uh, to extend in this way. That was, the, that was the kind of myth behind it. And I think our problem was that we, we saw that it was a myth. It was being carefully controlled by Beijing, but Shanghai, there were other stories in Shanghai, other histories in Shanghai that were in play here. And we actually had to go back into the past again to uncover those narratives to get some sense around Shanghai. So in the end, it was about China because, in fact, Shanghai is one part of China, obviously, but it, it didn't represent the most modern part of China. It represented a particular use of, uh, of a city to engage with the West, to open up to the West, but it did so in a way that is very definitely part of the Chinese project of modernization, not some kind of proto-Western development. Yeah, I mean, the, the book makes that point really well across um, the more detailed kind of historical um, and, and perhaps theoretical chapters on China. I, I'm particularly interested in, in what you'd said about, you know, on the one hand, Shanghai being this kind of emblem of, um, as you mentioned, you know, this quote-unquote gateway to modernity, but at the same time, um, the kind of control that Beijing had and, and the sort of very specific um, Chinese uh, nature of, of the development there. And, and how did this play out in, in Shanghai as a kind of creative city then? Well, um, I think they, uh, Shanghai, the Shanghai government, the municipal government, uh, was very keen to embrace the idea of creative industries. So the, the distinction was made that um, cultural industries were about culture and therefore they should fall under, let's say, the culture minister, ministry. And that, of course, is very much linked to um, uh, what, what we would call the propaganda minister. It's very much linked to, you know, images and, and, and ideas that the Communist Party deemed acceptable. And so it, it controlled, more or less, it controlled the culture system, if you like. Um, the creative industries were immediately seen as well that they involve creativity, but they don't go into culture. They go into things like business services, entertainment. Video games was there for a little bit. Now it reverted to culture, but it was it was more uh, it's more about entrepreneurial culture, about um, you know digital services, those kind of things, and so it was it was pushed to what it, they saw it as a, as a kind of commercialization of creativity seen not in not really related to um, cultural in- industries at all but they uh, so but shanghai was very were very taken up with um, ideas of creative cities and creative clusters especially and in fact uh, we'd met some shanghai uh, a shanghai delegation in 2002 i think it was came to manchester liverpool they did manchester liverpool london various places and they what they were drawn to was the role of uh, creative industries, creative clusters, if you like, in refurbishing old factories. So this is one of the strong things. So on the one hand, they've got this big innovation discourse that they kind of, they, you know, they realise they've got to go beyond 
basic manufacturing. They've got to go upgrade. They've got to look to creativity as one route into that. Then you've got this other strand about uh, revising, reviving the old industrial buildings because um, although you know Gordon Brown launching the creative creative industries uh, kind of doc, mapping document in '98 talks about the workshop of the world and how Britain was going to be a creative workshop of the world. And, it, and the whole creative industry's agenda was very much about how we're going to outcompete the East, which is good at manufacture, good at big, clunky, top-down state stuff, but we're bottom-up creative stuff. So it was very much about, you know, a, 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 the West kind of relaunching itself into, you know, uh, keeping ahead of the game. But, of course, Shanghai, across the 90s, had already it itself had been deindustrialized. You know, a lot of that industry was kind of old, uh, and a lot of it was being pushed out for for pollution reasons as much as anything. But it was being pushed out to up down, down into the Yangtze and down into the interior of China, and so Shanghai had a huge amount of old industrial stock, uh, mostly from the 30s and 40s, some earlier. But it had this old industrial stock. What do you do with it? Get in the creatives. So it was at first it was well it was a, a very much a real estate thing, um, and it was uh, creative industries we can bring them into these buildings. So we we chart that in one of the one of the chapters how that that was actually done. So it was seen as a it was it was seen as a kind of a fix for Shanghai's real estate there as well. They they also sought of course new new industries new sources of growth in that way. Um, but I, I think this, although this was very strong going up to about 2010, 2011, but around that time, uh, they began to, to change, which we might talk about a bit about later. But up till that time, the, the Western consultants going into China, you know, John Hawkins was there um, writing, I must say, pretty terrible books, uh, Creative Ecosystems, which commissioned, commissioned by the Chinese government, um, pretty, pretty thin. But also a whole range of Western consultants, British Council were in there, and all those kind of things, showing what this is what creative clusters will do. You get build the cluster, you get the creatives in, and you get this kind of bottom up milieu of a creative city. And and we what what we I suppose try and do is which makes some of the arguments complex at times, is that you know, that was that was a Western model. But it was a Western model that actually itself had already become instrumentalized by, by the, certainly by the turn of the 20th century, uh, 21st century, I should say. It, it, it was already closely linked to a real estate model of urban development that we all know and love today. Um, and so, and, and, and this suited the Chinese very well. Uh, what they found, of course, the Chinese said that it's all right to build a creative cluster, but it's not as easy to get some creatives in, uh, and that 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 was really the the problem. They found that the kind of creatives that went into these clusters, well, basically couldn't pay the rent because they weren't earning much money uh, because they were small scale early artists entrepreneurs in a an emergent economy in that sense. So uh, very quickly they got um, kicked out and they put gap and people like that in. So the creative clusters tended, one or two exceptions, but the creative clusters tended to become effectively kind of uh, trendy shopping, upmarket shopping, not shopping centres, but, you know, little little gifts, little 
cafes, little things, kind of leisure shopping, if you like, for, aimed at, at first expat, or, you know, foreigners, and gradually, you know, the kind of wealthier um, Chinese or Shanghainese middle class. But they dropped out by certainly by 2013, 14, they dropped out because, of course, the Shanghainese, Shanghai government could build their own clusters and they didn't need to go through all that uh, that stuff. So we, we kind of chart the kind of the, the, the rise and the fall of creative clusters in, in Shanghai. And I mean, <clears throat> you, you sort of gestured towards this already, but, but what's the situation in Shanghai today? What, what would we describe as, I guess, the kind of um, the creative economy, but with specific um, Chinese characteristics? How has that agenda in, in Shanghai been, um, you, you know, sort of adapted, almost kind of taken control of um, in the Chinese context? Well, I think we, um, I think the Chinese discovered that um, they had a perfectly serviceable model and they didn't need to go through all this creative milieu, creative cluster, creative entrepreneur stuff because this was really being sold. Uh, you know, you read some authors and, they, you know, the, the creative industries, you know, if you want the creative industries, China will have to change. And so creative industries were a catalyst or a Trojan horse or some, some such to actually make China into a kind of democratic or at least free market economy. And, and that clearly has not happened. And what China, I think, realised was um, very similar to what happened in South Korea, actually, which was this: the, the creativity arrived in East Asia at a moment just after the Asian financial crisis when the developmental state, this state that had grown up in the 50s and 60s and that had delivered huge economic growth in the Asian tigers. This was kind of on the back foot because of that Asian financial crisis. And so they, South Korea especially, began to kind of wind back the developmental state, you know, this very powerful state that directed economic development. It wound it back. Uh, introduced a lot of kind of neoliberal reforms, often being pushed there by the World Bank, etc. Um, so it, it took that, but it didn't really, it didn't do that too much. It still kept those powers in 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 kept powers in place. What it did do was to apply them to the cultural sector and South Korea, and you know, Hai Kyung Lee in in, um, in King's College has some great uh, has written a very good book on this that. They always call it cultural industries. They don't have any truck with creative industries. It's it's you know industries that make symbolic stuff, if you like, cultural stuff that uh, K-pop and K-fashion, latterly the soap operas, Korean films, and to do that, they didn't kind of wave a little wand of creativity, sprinkle creativity dust over people. They actually got the state in. They got huge research centres. They put massive capital investment in what they considered to be growth industries, and rolled out, you know, the Korean wave. And I think that's exactly what China learned how to do. It learned very quickly that this the, kind of the UK model was really just fairy dust. In fact, if you have to, if you want to build up large, world-beating global cultural corporations, you need a lot of money. You need big research. You need to buy up stuff. You need to invest. And, and that's how they began to do it domestically at first, you know, through various trial and errors. I mean, China 
is very good at trial and error. It, it, it experiments in certain parts. It can move. It can cut step back from policy. It can change policy because it has that longer capacity to do that. And and in fact, what we also argue is that's what actually that's how the United States operates. The United States doesn't operate creative economy stuff. It operates through trade policy, through state investment, through you know uh, big obviously big private investments. But it 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 it, it actually it getting to gains its global market dominance, not just because it produces great stuff, which it does. It's got the whole apparatus to produce great stuff, but it's also controls infrastructure, distribution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all these kind of things that we all know, and. I think China recognised that, and it's been looking at that. So, the China model is a is a is very much like the South Korean model. It's very much like actually parts of Japan had done in in the past, although Japan's slightly different. Um, that yeah, we're going to build an industry, and a culture industry is in some ways quite similar to other industries. If you want to just go for growth, so it's um, and 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 Shanghai, you can see that in Shanghai, they don't. Their creative clusters now aren't, you know, a little factory with a nice cafe. They're huge kind of industrial parks where millions and millions of renminbi are thrown at television production or music production or, um, you know, films, TV, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's – or games, you know, and they're developing those. They've, they've become much more sophisticated in understanding what the markets are and what industries are, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, and it's going for you know global domination or at least domination of the Belt and Road world. So they've they've got a they've got a, a industrial policy for culture, if you like, that bears no relation to the sort of stuff that's coming out of the UK, which essentially is PR and and head you know headsets, isn't it really? I mean that, that that's quite a nice moment to, to sort of conclude the um, the discussion of the book. I mean, we, we, we've only scratched the surface of, as I say, you know, the history of, of China that's in the book, uh, the discussion of, uh, I guess, kind of, you know, culture more generally in, in China and indeed the discussion of uh, Shanghai in a lot more more detail. But just as a sort of concluding question, um, you, you mentioned the kind of, you know, comparisons with, with America and, and then the, the end of, of kind of, um, the British creative industries model is this stuff you're going to be looking at in future work, um, or are you kind of working on uh, completely different things for your next uh, set of projects? Um, well, I'm, I'm I'm working on two things that come from that, I suppose. One, I actually, I'm interested in some of the geopolitical aspects of um, of China. And, and alternative modernities, because uh, a lot of the chapters, the earlier chapters, really go back into the 19th century, and so, some even before that, and look at where China came from with a different view of things. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested now, in, given the fact that we're now in a pretty much a, a much more hotter war situation than we were when in 2004, when everybody was going to be happy and the world was going to converge. Uh, the world's not going to converge. Uh, at the moment, and so understanding some of that uh, is, uh, is is has been important. Uh, is is something I'm going to work on. Um, at the same time, I'm looking at um, kind of re almost like retracing the steps back to the 
days of the cultural industries and perhaps even before then and start rethinking in a, in a Western perspective, as I say, it, very much thinking, rethinking the idea of culture and cultural policies from ground zero. Um, so that's um, it's going to be called the art of reconstruction. So that's going to be a, looking back to the New Deal, but also beyond that, back to you know post-slavery, etc., which didn't end well, I know. Um, but it's really looking back. You know, we need to go back to some of what is the purpose of culture, why should it be valued, and what kind of policy should come from that. And and that, again, that connects us to the, some of the questions we asked about China, going back to how what, what China did at the end of the 19th century. But we're asking, what role, what use is culture, and how might we strengthen it in, through, in, in terms of cultural policy? And that has to take into account um, what's happened you know, in the last 40, 50 years, the, the rise in the economic weight of culture in that way, uh, cultural industries and other, other forms. But we think, uh, you know, we're thinking it's got to be redefined using, if you like, heterodox economics and other kind of ways of looking at things. So that's kind of where a lot of the ideas from the China book will end up. Um, just finally, a very slight, odd one is... Um, uh, oh, some of that I want to kind of go back over in terms of a book on Joy Division, which um, may fill many people with dread, but it's <laughs> really looking at it's Joy Division and Manchester. It's really looking at Joy Division and the origins of the idea of the creative city. So that's, but that's for, that's for next year. <laughs>